We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Remember 2016, traveling into Shanghai, and it was not long after Xi Jinping had given his first major talk on religion, and a lot of people had been questioning what he was going to say about the future of the Communist Party and people of faith, because as you know, communism typically tries to drive out faith with an atheistic worldview and a belief that uh, people are responsible for, for contributing to society, for the upkeep of society. There's no individualism, no individual faith. And in his statement, he surprised people in that he called for an embracing of Christianity. And on the surface, it seemed like a win until he explained what he meant by that. And what he said basically was, Christianity's okay, there's no problem with Christianity, but what we would like for you to do is instead of your crucifixes and your pictures of Jesus, you, we want you to remove those and to put a picture of the prime minister. Basically, the same faith, just a different object of the faith. In a way that you and I, with a Christian worldview who worship Jesus, would understand is to completely miss the point. But he wasn't interested in creating an uproar because we know in China there are many Christians in the underground church that have been driven underground by a government that rejects them. So in a lot of ways, the government wants to keep the benefit of a people who live according to God's word, but they don't want to outwardly allow them to worship God. Even in the founding of the United States, we have quotes from several of our founding fathers who weren't distinctly Christian. Many were deists agnostic, who give a recognition of the importance and the need for religion. Benjamin Franklin says, but I must apprehend it has received various corruptive changes, talking about the Bible, and I have most of the present dissenters in England, England some doubts as to his divinity, talking about Christ. He has doubts. Though it's a question I don't dogmatize upon, having never studied it, and think it needless to busy myself with it now, when I expect soon an opportunity of knowing the truth with less trouble. You bet he will. I see no harm, however, in it being believed, if that belief has good consequence, as probably it has, of making the doctrines more respected and more observed, especially as I don't perceive that the supreme takes it amiss by distinguishing the unbelievers in his government of the world with any particular marks of displeasure. That's a pretty naive view of God, but he would acknowledge the benefit of religion. John Adams, uh, who we believe, or who explicitly denied the deity of Christ, said, suppose a nation in some distant region should take the Bible for their only law book and every member should regulate his conduct by the precepts there exhibited. Every member would be obliged in conscience to temperance, frugality, and industry, to justice, kindness, and charity towards his fellow men, and to piety, love, and reverence toward Almighty God. What a utopia, what a paradise that would be. So it's interesting, these guys grasp the gravity of religion the importance of religion, even though they reject themselves. And as we look at our text tonight, we're going to see that 
in Artaxerxes. That Artaxerxes is, is the king of Persia now. And, and remember last week, we, we looked at the beginnings of Ezra's journey back. And we came upon verse 10 that Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach his statutes. And, and Ezra set himself up as a faithful man that God will use. And now as we come to chapter 11, we're going to see Artaxerxes unleash Ezra to take the people back. And he's actually going to help Ezra establish a civic collection here. Uh, he's going to help him see him establish kind of political priorities. That in our text, we're going to see basically three decrees of Artaxerxes that give Ezra authority as he goes back to reestablish a political base. And, and as we mentioned last week, pragmatics probably drove Artaxerxes to that in that he was in conflict with Egypt and the idea of having an outpost in Israel that was loyal to the Persian king was a good thing. And so while we'll see Artaxerxes' pragmatism in sending the people back, Ezra again at the end is going to tie it all in a nice bow for us and give us a perspective. Because you and I live as Christians with this weird relationship with government, right? That we submit to our government. We're thankful. We largely live in a country where we're free to worship and free to do as we will. But it's one thing to live in that country as a faithful believer, uh, that we have to be faithful ultimately and to set our priority ultimately on what God prioritizes. And I think that's what we're going to see with Ezra. Ezra's not viewing his role primarily going back to set up a Persian outpost. He is not concerned primarily uh, with the flourishing of Persia. He's going to tell us in the last two verses what he's primarily concerned with, and that'll set a model for us as we live in a tenuous circumstance ourselves. So you've got your Bibles open already. We're in Ezra chapter 7, looking at verse 10 and 11. In verse 11, it says, there's a copy. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe. A man learned in the matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. How did Ezra become a man learned in the matters and the commandments of the Lord? Back in verse 10, he studied that the priority of Ezra's life was to know God, to know his commandments and to live them out. So much so that the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, says this is a man that knows the commandments well of the Lord. So if we're going to send someone back to Israel, someone back to Jerusalem, this is the guy. Artaxerxes, king of kings. King of kings is a title that was used of Persian kings that basically meant, you know, there were so several vassal states under Persia that had their own kings, their own leaders. But this is the way to say Artaxerxes is the king of kings, supreme over all of those. To Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, peace. 
that that title for Ezra is likely a, a religious secretary title. So that when we get into this letter, these decrees from Artaxerxes, you're going to think that Artaxerxes must be a Jewish guy because he seems to really understand the nature of Judaism, the call of the God of Israel for his people to worship. I think the reality is Ezra is his uh, insight. Ezra is his counselor so that Artaxerxes knows what to say because Ezra tells him and has helped him understand. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, scribe of the law of heaven, peace. And now I make a decree that any one of the people of Israel or the priests or the Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. Similar to, verse, to chapter 1, verse 1 uh, with Cyrus. It's a free release that anyone who wishes to, we're not going to oblige you to, you're not obligated to go, but anyone who wants to go can go back. And so Artaxerxes recognizes here Ezra's role in in the political restoration of Israel under Persia and and a need for Israel, for their identity as Jews to worship the one true God. And these decrees are going to set them up to go do just that. He says, I made a decree that any one of the people of Israel may go with you, for you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand. In your hand. We're not talking about just an oral belief system here. We're talking about the written word of God that he says is in his hand and also to carry the silver and the gold that the king and the counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. That this king is actually giving them silver and provisions for the trip freely. It's an act of grace. He's not being held hostage. He's not being threatened. He's freely giving this Uh, And and I think one of the observations we start to see is that God often uses outside people to bring blessing even in the church, but certainly within Israel. Just as he did with Cyrus in chapter 1, he's going to use Artaxerxes to bless the people from the outside. Verse 16, with all the silver and gold you find in the whole province of Babylonia, with the freewill offerings of the people and the priests, vowed willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. With this money then you shall with all diligence buy bulls and rams and lambs and the grain offerings and their drink offerings and you shall offer them on the the altar of your house of your God that is in Jerusalem. That, That again, because Ezra has been in his presence, he seems to understand the nature of the Jewish law. And he's, he's making sure that when they go back, he's not just saying you're free to go, but he's saying, hey, I want to make sure you're provided for and that you guys are able to worship the way you ought to worship, that the offerings that you're going to make are provided for you freely, that that we know from the external writings that the Persian kings, as we've seen twice already in this story, but they're typically, they took the religious rights of their subjects very important. 
as very important. Remember the Cyrus cylinder, the, the worship of Marduk for the, for the Babylonians, that they recognize that we need to allow the people, unlike the, unlike the Babylonians who sought to crush, the Assyrians who sought to destroy, they allowed people largely to live in their own circles, to be free to worship how they will. So when we look at this letter, there are, there are, there are five provisions that, that, that come through these various decrees. The first one that we've already seen is he's granted Ezra and those who follow him to return to the land. Second, he's giving the Israelites the grant to buy sacrifices and temple vessels so that they're able to worship God faithfully. Let's keep going. Verse 18, whatever seems good to you and your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold, you may do according to the will of your God. He's not giving them the freedom to be licentious with the money. He's not saying, hey, take it and build whatever you want, do whatever you want. It's a lottery win. He's saying according to the will of your God, that there's a lot of trust that Artaxerxes is putting in Ezra and his men to only use what God would have them use that basically they're stewards of this money for the worship of God. It's not a free grant, a free lottery. It's just take this, we're going to give you a lot of it, use it as is appropriate to worship the Lord your God as he sees fits. And so this is the, this is, um, the vessels that have been given to you for the service of the house your Lord, you shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem and whatever whatever else is required for the house of God which falls to you to provide you may provide it out of the king's treasury and he goes on beyond that in verse 21 and I Artaxerxes the king make a decree to all the treasuries in the province beyond the river whatever Ezra the priest the scribe of the law the god of heaven requires of you let it be done with all diligence that basically he's given them a blank check to carry as, as they travel across to get to Jerusalem. The provinces that they'll go through, it's a blank check to cash with any of the leaders of those provinces for any needs they have. That Artaxerxes wants them to do well. He wants them to succeed and he wants the leaders in these provinces to be a part of it and to not get in their way. And that's where you get the third decree. It commands the treasures and the provinces that they will pass through to give supplies to Ezra. Verse 22, up to 100 talents of silver. I think that's 7,500 pounds of silver. I don't even know what that'd be worth today, but a lot. 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt without prescribing how much, any amount you need for the preservation and taste. But this is an outpouring. They're not going, they're not having to scrimp that they are being fully provided for. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done fully for the house of God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. You know, back a couple pages, as we look back in 
in chapter 10. Look in chapter 10 and verse 10. I'm sorry, chapter 6 and verse 10. This is Darius, the previous king of Persia, and he says that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. So when we're even talking about this weird relationship between government and people, we're not necessarily talking about complete manipulation. I think it's a pragmatism. It's not a, it's not a, a false thing. It's not a manipulative thing. It's a genuine, sincere idea. It, it's almost like I'm just going to throw this up against the wall and hope it sticks. If I give enough credit to all the gods, then certainly one of them is going to take care of me. So you Jewish people, please pray for the king and for his sons. Or as Artaxerxes says, he says, uh, let it be done in full for the house of God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. It's almost like a superstition. Throw a pinch of salt over my shoulder. That if the God you worship is real, make sure he doesn't curse my people my family, my name, my kingdom. He's sort of hedging his bets. We will also notify you that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute, custom, or toll to any one of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, or other servants of the house of God. This is the fourth thing he does. He removes the burden of taxation from all the temple officials that there's a recognition here that these guys have a special duty and we're not going to tax them on that duty. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that's in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God. And those who do not know them, you shall teach Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether by death or banishment or confiscation of his goods or imprisonment. This is where it gets kind of interesting. That, that the fifth thing that the king grants Ezra is it, is it authorizes him to set up a judicial system. Uh, to see that the Jews obey their laws and the king's laws. He's going to let them enforce their own laws. And he expects that his laws will be followed. And so he recognizes the need for order. Uh, the laws of the Persian king, the laws of Israel God. Another thing is Artaxerxes doesn't see these laws as contradicting He's seen Ezra's wisdom, and he's now given him authority. He wants the Jews to live under that same authority, God's law, that Ezra had lived under. That, that I think in a lot of ways, it's like a testimony of faithfulness, right? That, that Artaxerxes looks at Ezra and says, man, whatever it is that that guy's got, whatever it is that he's got, I want all these other people to have it too. And so he recognizes, much like we heard in John Adams' quote, much like we saw in Ben Franklin's quote, that there's this reality and acknowledgement that, 
that these will be better citizens if they're faithful to their God. And, and that's the record we see with the Persian kings. Largely, they were gracious and, and, and encouraging of people to be faithful to their gods. Uh, that they were, that, that the extra biblical accounts, the, the history books that we've got about Persia show us that the kings were, were most interested that each subject take their own laws seriously that your laws can't contradict with our laws, but we want to make sure that whatever laws you have, you take seriously. Why? Well, because if we blow off your own laws, how much more likely are you to blow off the Persian laws? That we want people who are faithful to what they believe. Now, in verse 26, he talks about punishment, that, that he's not giving Ezra express permission to punishment, but he's saying that the Persian government, that the people we have there will back you up. That if there's consequences to be doled out, that they will be carried out under the, under the authority of Persia. But I think this is where we gotta be a little careful. So, so Ezra's been put in this position of authority. He's been granted the, the permission to do this, much like Joseph was in Egypt, right? Uh, and, and he's been given authority in a, formal, in a foreign government, but it's one of those things we ha kind of have to be careful what we wish for. Uh, if we've got a, a secular government that's overseeing to enforce God's law, this can be a dangerous thing, Right? That, that, that it's important that a biblical worldview guide us, that it, that it can give us a picture of an ideal society, that we want, you and I would say, it's best if everyone lived according to biblical principles, if everyone lived by a biblical worldview. The challenge is when you start wanting to enforce that with a government control, that, that you that you typically do one of two big things if, if you try to start saying the government's going to impose a religious system. First of all, you end up with a syncretism and you end up with, with the bringing in of a lot of pagan ideas that just sort of mesh together and you get a blob and essentially an apostate faith. This is what we see in, in the early centuries under, under Constantine in the Roman Empire when he imposed Christianity. That what came about wasn't actually a genuine, faithful Christianity. The other thing you can end up with is a people who reject and resent and despise being forced, being enforced to live with biblical norms. We've seen that in the headlines the last few weeks, right? As, as we see Roe v. Wade overturned, you have people that are, that are crying out, you can't impose your religious beliefs on everyone. Now, you and I would say it has nothing to do with religious beliefs. It has to do with the dignity of human life, the value of human life made in the image of God. That my biblical worldview drives that, but that's, that's common general revelation that we should all appreciate and understand or in areas of, of sexuality. You can't impose your religious beliefs on me. One of the challenges of, of uh, you know, if, if, so if I gave us all a button that we could push that somehow the federal government would start to impose biblical principles that, that we might be tempted to push it. The challenge is 
That's not the nature of the gospel. The nature of the gospel is obedience that comes through heart change. Remember, Ezra set his heart to study, to obey, and to teach. It was always about the heart. <clears throat> that the gospel calls us to be conformed to his image. That if we simply apply external pressure to get people to live obedient lives, we haven't really accomplished a lot. The sidewalks may be a little cleaner. People might be a little nicer. But ultimately, what difference does it make? I used to have a neighbor that, that, that he smoked a lot and he drank a lot and he sat out on his front porch and he did it a lot. And he was unemployed and it was a challenge. And I remember thinking and processing and talking about this neighbor and, and spent a lot of time thinking in my mind. And I was like, you know, one of the things that I think we try to do a lot of time is we, we try to apply pressure to people. So could I put pressure on my neighbor that might eventually help him drink less or might help him smoke a few less cigarettes? And the reality is I might be able to apply the right kinds of pressure to get him to stop doing that. But even if I got him to stop doing those things, what difference have I made? He's still got the same heart issue. He's still got the same struggle. He's still got the same separation from God. All I've done is polished up the outside a little bit. And I think a lot of times as we look at our culture and we look at what we long for in our culture, a lot of times we want behavioral change. Think about your parenting. Are you driven with your, with your kids and your grandkids to just have them live in external obedience? Or do you want to ultimately see them long to obey, for their hearts to actually be turned affectionately to the Lord so that they obey out of an inward motivation? You see, this edict that comes from Artaxerxes is well-placed. And, and the problem is, as Ezra's going to find out in the next few chapters, the people are in need of radical heart change, not just external behavior. Now, we need to correct external behavior, and I'm not saying that external behavior is to be neglected because I believe the Lord changes our behavior as he changes our hearts. It's simply to say our goal isn't simply to set up a culture that does the externals well, that we want to see the Lord work in the lives of men and women, that they might be internally changed and obey the Lord. Behavior modification is never the goal of the gospel. It's never the goal of the church. It's sanctification that comes from the changing of the heart. That as the Spirit works in us and as we grow, we obey because we long for the things that God longs for, that our heart is changed, our mind is changed, our desires are changed. It's not just external pressure that comes in. It's an internal change that takes place. See, that's the thing that's missing oftentimes when we hear people from the outside, world leaders, make an assumption about Christianity. When you flip on the History Channel or CNN and you hear a religious expert talking about our faith and you, you listen for two minutes and you're like, this person has no idea what our faith is about. They know the facts about Christianity, but they completely misrepresent our motivation 
and our desire for change. Even the, the news that's come out over the last few months as the Supreme Court's made decisions that, that the church would be in favor of, there's a misunderstanding with the fundamental desire. You take abortion as an issue. It's not a political desire to win a political argument. It's not a political desire to control people's lives. It's a belief and a faith in God who created the universe, in God who, who created man in his image, who longs for, loves, and cares for every individual, that there's dignity that comes from the fact that you're a human made in the image of God, end of story. But that's not what gets represented because the public largely doesn't understand this. So when we read these words by Artaxerxes, they're well-intended words, and there's not a problem with them because he's put Ezra in a position. But know that Ezra's heart isn't simply moving, his desire isn't simply to go set up a Persian outpost of people that will be loyal to the king. We're going to see in these last two verses what Ezra's perspective is on all of this. In verse 27, we get a shift that'll be with us for the next couple chapters and that the author shifts from, a, shifts from a third person telling of the story to where we get Ezra's memoirs, his thoughts. He shifts to, shifts to first person. Look at Ezra. He says, blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that's in Jerusalem. This is the same language that's used back in Isaiah 60, beautifying the house of the Lord. It's a future promise. In Isaiah, it's an ultimate fulfillment. But here, Ezra's pointing back to Isaiah's prophecy saying, the Lord is actually beautifying his house right now. And he laid it on this pagan king's heart, on Artaxerxes' heart, to allow this to take place. But Ezra doesn't say praise to Artaxerxes because he knows what's driving Artaxerxes. He knows that God has made this move. Who extended in me his steadfast love. There's that word again, hesed, the loyal love of God that's, that, that's more than just an affectionate outward feeling, but it's a love that's based on commitment. It's unconditional because God promised he would love them. He continues to love them with a steadfast love that can't go away. Before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers, Ezra knows at the end of the day, God's the one that's, that's done this. He's taken this. We were praying this week in the missions office about a situation that's taking place overseas. And, and midway through our conversation, one of the guys on the call stopped and said, I think we need to pray that God will um, accomplish his purposes here and, and lead to the outcome that we desire. And it, it wasn't intended and it wasn't in any way a rebuke. But in that moment, I kind of had this jolt because I had been focused so much on the pragmatics of how I get from A to B, how we solve this problem, what conversations need to be had, what things need to be prevented, what actions need to take place to happen to do this thing that seems impossible. 
And with those simple words, I was preparing this text, and I was like, that's it. If God can change the heart of Cyrus, if God can change the heart of Artaxerxes and Darius, then he can take care of any situation you and I are looking at. This is the God of the universe imposing his will through, a, through, a, through an external king to accomplish his purposes. And while a lot of us may have wanted to have a ticker tape parade for Artaxerxes, Ezra's there saying, Lord, you did this. You took care of this. You accomplished your purposes. Now, would we rather have Artaxerxes over Nebuchadnezzar? Sure. Would we rather have Artaxerxes over Nero? Sure. No question. Because he allows them to flourish just as our government allows us to flourish. But make no mistake where Ezra's ultimate allegiance lies. It's to the God who allowed this to happen. And I think that's got to be our perspective. God, you allowed me to be in this situation right here. So what is he going to do? I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me. What is God calling you to be courageous with? What is God calling us as Denton Bible Church to be courageous with? As a group here at the evening service, what is it that you need to be courageous with knowing that the hand of the Lord is upon you? Not because you keep an external set of rules, because you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You've committed your life to obedience with him. What conversations do you need to have? What stand do you need to take and let the chips fall where they will? What steps do you need to take to serve others that are inconvenient for you, that are, that are uncomfortable for you? What is it that we need to do knowing the hand of the Lord is upon us? That he's sent his son. He's saved us from death. He's made us alive. He's in our lives. His spirit dwells in us, enabling us to do the work that he calls us to do, to obey him in areas that he calls us to obey. Where do we need to take courage? The goal isn't to be the most popular people in Persia. The goal is to be obedient to God. And I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. That Ezra didn't do this alone. That we're going to see the delegation of leadership. That, that Ezra is not celebrating in his newfound freedom. He knows it's not his skill, his wisdom, his personality, his insight, his persuasiveness, his legal manipulation, that this is God's work and he's gonna have guys alongside him. He chose leaders and he shared the responsibilities of God's work with them. That we're a body. We're in this together. All of us. What do we need to do today to obey God, to trust him, to take courage?
that we have to be a people who know where our loyalties lie and that we ultimately trust God for all that he's done. And we take courage and we obey. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for all the work that you've done in our lives to bring us to this point. We go all the way back to creation in the garden that you made us in your image and that we disobeyed and we rebelled. But Lord, even then, you set a plan of reconciliation to send your son ultimately to die for our sin. Thank you that we don't have to earn your love, but that we place our faith in Christ. And Lord, now, just as you were faithful to the people, just as you were faithful to Ezra, to change the king's heart. Would you help us find favor? Lord, would you work through us and help us take courage to obey you? We pray in your son's name. Amen.